Reading your Bible, praying, finding time to be alone with God does not make you more acceptable to God, nor do those practices change you. Rather, it is where change happens, as we come to meet with our Father and connect with His heart. Our teacher on this important subject is author and speaker Preston Gillum of Fort Worth, Texas, when he spoke at the Christ's Life Conference hosted by Crossways to Life. May Father use this message to deepen your walk with Him. Last spring, I was in um, the state of Maine and had been speaking up there, and a, a nor'easter came up the uh, east coast of the United States. I don't know if you get those things up here and if they affect you or not, but at any rate, it's a really violent uh, winter storm. And uh, so anyway, one of these nor'easters blew into... Um, Maine, and so lots of snow and lots of wind and and all those sorts of things. And I was trying then to I'd finished my conference and was was trying to get home. And I kept looking at the Weather Channel, and I was supposed to fly out of uh, Portland, Maine. And the Weather Channel kept telling me that all the uh, that the flight status in Portland, Maine, was that there was no that there were no delays. And I kept thinking, well, that's, you know, that's amazing that there aren't any delays because all up the eastern seaboard of the United States, the airports were all closed and everything else. And I'm thinking, how is it that Portland, Maine is still open? And um, so then at some point, the thought dawned on me, I wonder if the flights at Portland are normal because there are no flights. <laughs> and sure enough... <laughs> Everything was normal in Portland because there was nothing to be abnormal with. So at any rate, to make a long story short, we braved the weather and made this mad drive through flooded road conditions and everything else to Boston and arrived at Boston Logan Airport then to try to find a flight out of Boston anywhere and it was an absolute madhouse. And so anyway, to make, again, a very long story short, I was on the telephone to the airlines and uh, standing at the ticket counter talking to this ticket agent. And meanwhile, there's another passenger right next to me. And and uh, in the American Airlines uh, scheme of... of uh, of uh, premium passengers, the, the highest level is an executive platinum flyer, and this guy was explaining that he's an, an executive platinum flyer, and I need a seat, and blah, blah, and the lady's telling him, I'm sorry, sir, there are no seats anywhere. And, you know, so I'm hearing this, and I'm kind of praying and saying, well, you know, my chances of getting out of Boston are slim and none here. And so this guy, meanwhile, that I'm talking to, he says, um, you know, he's typing and so on, and he says, he says, says, well, Mr. Gillum, it looks really bad. I tell you what, uh, tell you what I'm going to do. Though I'm going to, I had been asking to go to St. Louis. Just, I mean, I figured, you know, anything to at least get something moving and get away from this storm. And he said, well, he says, I tell you what I'm going to do. Says I'm going to put you on flight, you know, 1788, uh, nonstop from uh, Boston to Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, would that be okay with you? <laughs> That's where I want to go, you know? And he put me on, a, you know, gave me a seat nonstop, Boston, Dallas-Fort Worth, and I turn around, I've got a ticket in my hand, and the whole rest of the world is back there waiting to try to get out of Boston, and I've got a ticket. And I just, I walked away and I said, Father, I don't know how you did that, but that's amazing. And so I, um, I, you know, get on the airplane. I kept thinking, you know, this thing's not going to take off, but it did. And so I'm, I'm, you know, sitting in the back of the airplane, but hey, at least it beats walking. And so I'm, I'm sitting in a middle seat and I'm sitting next to this flight attendant who's deadheading out of Boston to uh, Dallas, Fort Worth. And her name is Madeline. And so, you know, it's, uh, I think, a four-and-a-half-hour ride from Boston to Dallas-Fort Worth, something like that. And so we don't talk much, but a little bit. I mean, after four-and-a-half hours, you know, you kind of need something to do other than just sit there and read. And so we talked a little bit. And then in the last 30, 40 minutes of the flight, Madeline and I began to talk and, and so on. And uh, 
I said, uh, making small talk, I said, so where, you know, what's your next uh, flight? And she said, well, I'm, I'm flying on Saturday. And I said, really? And so where are you going? And she said, well, I'm going to Seattle. And I said, really? What flight? And she said, well, it's the, the 9 a.m. flight. And I said, Madeline, you're not going to believe it. Um, I'm on the 9 a.m. flight Saturday to Seattle as well. And she said, well, be sure and say hi. She said, I'll be working the first class cabin. And I said, well, I will say hi when I pass through to the cheap seats. And, <clears throat> and so anyway, we, uh, you know, depart, you know, leave and so on. And I go home, tell Diane, my wife, about all of this and everything. So Saturday comes and I go out the airport and get on the airplane. Sure enough, there's Madeline in the first class galley and I speak to her and she remembers me and all of that. And so I make my way back to my seat and, uh, sit down and my two, you know, worst nightmares, uh, occur when I sit down. Number one, I've got a seat that has been sat in one too many times. The bottom is just rump sprung, you know, and there's a bar underneath those things and I could feel it right across my tailbone. And furthermore, then that old seat was kind of rocked like this. And so I'm kind of, you know, like this and it's a five hour ride to, to Seattle, you know, or five and a half. And with a bad back, man, sitting in a rump sprung, uneven seat, I mean, I just, there's no way. And so I, you know, get up. I mean, this isn't the first thing, the first time this happened. I get up and I pull the seat up because those things are Velcroed in there, you know, pull it up and kind of mash on a little bit and try to get it put back in. No, I mean, it's not working. It's still bad. And so I'm sitting there and I'm praying and I'm saying, okay, Father, this is going to be a long ride. And then my second worst nightmare happens. This person comes in and sits down next to me and this person takes up more than their share. And they're bleeding under the arm of the chair and over the, the chair. And so I've got this person sitting in part of my chair with me all the way to Seattle. And I'm, you know, and so I'm kind of like this and, and cockeyed and I'm saying, well, Father, I'm going to be standing up the, the whole trip. Which, I mean, hey, I've stood up whole trips before, you know, with my back. And so that wasn't anything new, but I just said, okay, Father, whatever you got, and so I got myself organized, you know, and got my book out and, you know, got this routine you go through. And so the doors are closed and we're kind of backing away from the gate and everything. And all of a sudden I, I feel this cheek against my left cheek. And I kind of, you know, which is an odd thing to have happen on an airplane. And so I, you know, I kind of turn and it's Madeline. And Madeline whispers in my ear and she says, I have a seat in first class if you want it. And so I got up and I I went, you know, got my bag and went up and I put my bag up there and sat down in that great big chair and there wasn't anybody sitting next to me, you know. So I had two first class seats, you know, there. And I knew that my father had provided for me. He provided for me the week before flying out of Boston. He provided for me that day flying to Seattle. And Madeline took, took care of me the whole way. And before we'd ever left the ground, I turned and I looked out the window, um, partially to just change the view, but partially to hide the tears that were in my eyes. As I said, Father, I don't understand for most of my life, I have tried to evade you. I've tried to keep my distance from you. Tried to keep you at bay. And your relentless determination to pursue me, to do little things here and there, to communicate that you're thinking about me, it's more than I can stand. Thank you for this blessing. Thank you for this gift to sit in this particular seat and get me uh, comfortable for such a long, long ride. I believed that if I could figure out God, then I could stay out of his way. If I could just, if I could just understand what made his mind work, then I could keep, keep my distance from him. I figured that if I could just keep him happy, then I could avoid his intervention. And so I did the right thing in life. 
I figured out how to do the right thing. And you know what? I've got some talents and some skills. I've got a reasonable degree of intelligence. And I brought all of that to bear on on doing the right things because I believe that if I did the right things, then God would have no cause to show up and point out that I had done something wrong. I exercised the spiritual disciplines because I figured that those were important to him. Uh, the spiritual disciplines, uh, depends on who you read as to how many there are. Uh, I think there's about seven personally. But there are things like Bible study and prayer and fasting, stewardship, and so on. I figured that if I read my Bible a lot, that that would make God happy, and that if he was happy, then I could avoid him. And so every day, because it was the right thing to do, I sat down and I read my scriptures an hour minimum every day just to exercise that spiritual discipline of reading the scriptures. Uh, One of the other spiritual disciplines is prayer. I created a book of prayer and of lists, and I worked hard at that. I read a book called Praying Hide. They called him Camel Knees because he spent so much time praying that he grew calluses on his knees. And I read that book, and I modeled myself after Praying Hide. And I knelt beside my bed with religious fervor, and I prayed, not because I believed that God would do anything, but because I believed that by my doing something, it would keep God under control. Fasting, I've already shared with you that I fasted for 40 days one time when I was trying to get God to do what I wanted him to do with regard to healing my back. I fasted shorter periods of times uh, with some regularity because I believed that if I fasted, it would get God's attention and that God would then do what I wanted him to do. Sounds an awful lot like one of those birds you train, doesn't it? Evangelism, I shared my faith, confession. Uh, when I would come upon uh, some failing in my life, I would confess that with great determination and great delineation and great demarcation about every nuance and facet of that to be sure that I confessed that I confessed that I confessed so that God would be sure and be faithful to forgive me for my sin. Frugality and stewardship. Hey, I grew up in a house with a a dad who grew up in the Great Depression. I knew how to be frugal. I knew how to be a good steward. I uh, had a list. I had a a chain of of, uh, perfect attendance pins from my church because one of the other spiritual disciplines is fellowship uh, with the believers. And so I did that, not because I cared about fellowshipping, but because I figured that it was important to God, and if I did it, then it would keep God happy. The idea that I could be God's friend was simply inconceivable. It never crossed my imagination. I knew that God loved me, but I figured that he had to love me because he's love. And if he doesn't love me, then he would be untrue to his own nature. So sure, God loves me. He loves everybody. He loves because he has to love, but that doesn't mean that he likes me. Uh, The little book that says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I believed that I knew what God's wonderful plan for my life was. My wonderful, His wonderful plan for my life was that I would serve Him and that I would represent Him well and that if I did that, then it would be a testimony to His love and to His graciousness and so on. Of course, I didn't know much about those things, but I, uh, I tried to help fulfill His wonderful plan. I served God out of obligation and fear and represented him out of those motivations. I sought independence from God through the disciplines of the spiritual life, and I sought them with a religious fervor. George MacDonald says, the one principle of hell is, I am my own. Francis Thompson wrote a poem that says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my mind. And in the midst of tears and under running laughter, I hid from him. Up visted hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase, an unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, 
Majestic instancy they beat, and the voice beat, more instant than the feet. All things betray thee, who betrayest me. God did many things in his pursuit of me. I was sick one day. Too sick to go to work, but not so sick that I had to stay in bed. You ever been sick like that? I was sick like that. And I uh, sat down in my rocking chair with my pajamas and my robe, and I picked up a book that was a compilation of the works of C.S. Lewis. And I began to read. It took me until Friday to read the entire book, um, except for the letters. And I was avoiding the letters because I figured, how boring can that be to read somebody's letters to somebody else? But I read the whole book, and I think God, in his patient way, was saying, golly, you know, if you just read the letters, which is why I wanted, you know. But it took me to Friday to get there, and he was patient. And so on Friday, to finish the book, I opened um, up and began to read the letters that C.S. Lewis wrote to various and sundry people. And in one of them, he uh, was writing a letter to a man named Arthur Greaves. And in this letter, he began to talk about how God was pursuing him. He began to talk about and describe his, his conversion from atheism to believing that God existed. And then what he calls a second conversion to Christianity where he um, believed that Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God and became a genuine uh, Christian as opposed to just simply a convert. I was deeply moved by those letters, and the thing that moved me was this. I saw from what C.S. Lewis was writing that God, whom he refused to call God, he called him his adversary, he called him his angler, uh, he called him the great spirit, but he wouldn't call him God because if if there is a person uh, called God, then by definition you have to submit to him, and if you submit to him, then you're no longer an atheist. And he held his atheism dear, and so he wouldn't call him God. He'd call him angler and spirit and so on. And, and in this description, Lewis portrayed God as pursuing him. That was a new thought for me. Because all of my life, I had pursued God. And so I sat back in my chair, and I said, Hmm, I never thought about this before. God is after me. I'm not after him. This, uh, you know, this concept of following hard after God and, and so on that we like to throw around in Christian circles, I can't find it in the scriptures. What I find is a God who's following hard after us. What I find is a God who came to hell in the person of Christ to find me. And when he found me, he determined that he would rather die than to return without me. And all the while, I thought he was chasing, I thought I was chasing him. And all of a sudden, things began to switch in my head, and I sat in my chair in my robe, and I said, God, I see a different side of you than I've ever seen before. You searching for me is a new idea. You searching for me makes me more than just the beneficiary of salvation. You searching for me makes me more than just some trophy that, that you want. It makes me more than a person who simply performs in order to keep you happy. It makes me more than a person who simply conforms to some ideal. It makes me into someone that you want to know and have a relationship with and whom you want to call a friend. The performance of my spiritual life then began to change. Once I began to see a different side of God, I began to do the spiritual disciplines differently. I began to think of them differently. No longer were they spiritual disciplines, but rather they were heartfelt, personal 
disciplines. I'm not a big fan of the word discipline uh, because it has the the connotation of of punishment and so on with it. The the idea that is trying to be conveyed when we talk about spiritual disciplines, though, is one, I think, of consideration, of thoughtfulness, of positioning, and so on. I, I think of it against the relationship that I have with my wife, Diane. There is discipline in my relationship to her. Um, I do things in a disciplined way with Diane. I, uh, when I'm on the road, I call her every night. I email her. I do all sorts of things. Uh, there's a whole routine for how we go about life and we've worked ourselves into it over the course of 18 years of, of marriage and it is discipline. But it's more than that. It is a thoughtfulness. It is a consideration. It is a posture that each of us assumes in order to convey to the other, I'm your friend, I'm leaning into you. And yes, I'm your friend, I'm leaning back into you. That relationship thrives because there is the discipline of thoughtfulness and the discipline of consideration, the discipline of time spent, and so on. In other words, when I think of the personal spiritual disciplines, I think of it as the act of leaning toward God. It's part of that trust component that I've been describing. Richard Foster, who's written a lot about this, describes it this way. He says, the spiritual disciplines are like a narrow ridge with a sheer drop-off on either side. There is the abyss of trust in works on one side and the abyss of faith without works on the other side. On the ridge, there is a path the disciplines of the spiritual life. We must always remember that the path does not produce change. It only places us where the change can occur. In other words, spiritual discipline, the personal disciplines, put me in a place where God can do what God wishes to do where God can take us where he wishes for us to go in our relationship. That's what the personal disciplines do for us. Dallas Willard um, says the spiritual disciplines are quote a simp- are simply a matter of following Jesus into his own practices appropriately modified to suit our own condition. Let me read that again. The spiritual disciplines are simply a matter of following Jesus into his own practices appropriately modified to suit our own condition. So what were the practices of Jesus? Luke chapter 5 verse 16. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. There's the spiritual practice of solitude. Spiritual practice of solitude. Jesus practiced this in his life. And it is one of those things that if you go read a book on the spiritual disciplines, will be one of the chapter headings. Solitude. It is part of the positioning of ourselves to where we put ourselves in a place for God to do what God wants to do in us and through us. Jesus did exactly the same thing. Um, Luke 22, 39 And Jesus came out and proceeded, as was his custom. That's what I want to underscore. Jesus proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. And the next two verses describe his practice of prayer. As was his custom, Jesus went and prayed. Then uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 16 And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. So there's fellowship. 
There's prayer. There's communication with the saints. And there's solitude. That's simply three examples of how Jesus implemented spiritual disciplines or personal discipline into his own life such that he put himself in a place where his father could do as his father wished. As I... uh, Think about this. There are many passages of Scripture that talk about the idea of of practices, uh, spiritual practice, spiritual discipline. Um, Hebrews chapter 5 says that solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Get that? Solid food. That's what we're talking about tonight is solid food. Uh, This isn't a beginning discussion of spirituality. This is solid food. Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is writing to uh, his mentee and he says, But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And then he goes on for the next five or six verses and he talks about uh, ministry focus. He talks about disciplines. He talks about mental confidence, mental focus. And he says, take pains with these things. Be absorbed with them so that your progress is evident. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. You hear the discipline. You hear the positioning. You hear the thoughtfulness, the practice that is being discussed. Philippians 4, 8, and 9, Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, good repute, and so on, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And literally what it says in the original language is, Let your mind dwell and continue dwelling at successive intervals on these things. Now, there's there's repetition involved here. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So the spiritual disciplines have with them an element of practice, an element of determination, an element of thoughtfulness and positioning. I'm a fly fisherman. And um, one of the things I love about fly fishing is that I've been at it for a number of years and I find that I'm still progressing. I'm still progressing. I One of my goals is to learn what's called the double haul. I won't bother you with what it is. It's just part of casting a fly line. And I will put one of my fly rods together and I'll string it up and I'll go out the front door and I'll march down uh, Wilshire Boulevard and, and cross over to the park that's on the other side of the street. Hey, listen, there isn't any water close. All right, the closest water is another half a block and it's a city pool. All right, there's no water, there's just grass. There's nothing on the end of my fly line. But you know what? I stand down there in the park and guess what I do? I practice trying to learn the double haul. And one of these days, you know what? I'm going to catch a fish using a double haul. I'm practicing, I'm developing, I'm putting myself in a place such that one of these days, I will say, I have grown, I have progressed, I have formed in some area that's important to me. So my approach to this idea of personal discipline and so on began to change as my concept of who God is began to change. Instead of the disciplines being something that I did for God in order to get God to like me or in order to stay away from God, the disciplines became something that enabled me to position myself such that I was leaning into God, listening, paying attention to what God was saying as he leaned back. So, for example, Bible reading. It's important to read for volume. Uh, Sit down and just read. Sit down and say, Father, this is your book. I believe that it is your word to me. You have filled me with your Holy Spirit. 
through the power of your Holy Spirit, I believe that you can interpret this to me. I'm going to start reading and then begin to read. Understand some things about your Bible. Number one, it's not sequential. All right. If you sit down and read a novel and you start on page 200, you're not going to understand what's going on. You can sit down with your Bible and start on page 200, provided that's the start of a book. I didn't look to see if it was or not. But anyway, it is not sequential. It's thematic. It's built on themes. There are small themes like history and prophecy and poetry and letters and so on. And then there are big themes like covenant. And so you can, you can read and look for a long drawn out theme. Covenant starts in Genesis and it goes all the way to the maps. You know? And then you can read, uh, for themes of history. Buy yourself one of those biblical charts and find out, well, when was it that Isaiah wrote his book? And what was going on about that time? And who else wrote a book about this time? And how did those two guys connect up? In the scriptures. But if you sit down and you start on page one and you try to go to page whatever it is over here, uh, that's not going to necessarily make sense to you because it's not sequential. So understand what you're looking at when you begin to, to read the scripture. Um, and furthermore, um, it's fine to get yourself a version of the Bible that you like, that makes sense to you when you read. I mean, sometimes, I mean, there are people that, that, you know, eat, live, and breathe the King James Bible. They love the rhythm and the rhyme and the words, and, and that's great. That's fine. It's a good version of the Bible. There are other people that want something that flows a little more uh, easily, a little more modern, uh, a modern pace. That's fine as well. Um, but when you get ready to study your Bible, get yourself a Bible translation that is worthy of your word-for-word study. A New American Standard would be a great choice for that. Um, the one Bible that I just don't like, period, is the New International Version. They made a number of mistakes in that, and I just don't like the translation. But, you know, hey, I know there are a lot of people that carry that, and there are a lot of big sales on it. So I've probably just made myself uh, unpopular with some publishers. But, hey... Um, so read the Bible for volume. Second of all, read, read a book of the, of the Bible. Uh, look and see who the audience is before you begin to read. Why did this guy uh, or this woman, why did they write to this particular audience? What was on Paul's mind when he wrote to the Galatians? Why is it that Luke's uh, stories of Jesus are different than the stories that Matthew tells about Jesus? One has one audience, one has another audience, one is trying to stress one point, one is trying to stress another point. It is uh, important for you to understand what you're reading. A study Bible um, is perfect. Go Google an introduction to the book of Luke. That'll be good enough for you. You know, you don't have to go do anything fancy, but be thoughtful when you go to, to the scriptures. Um, when I read through a book of the Bible, one of the things that I do is I uh, take notes in my computer. In other words, I make my own commentary as I go, and I, I make observation. I'm going to show you some of that in, uh, in another night so that you can see how I do that. Some, uh, one of the spiritual uh, disciplines is memorization when it comes to the, to the Bible. Uh, memorization was always something that people beat me over the head with. When I was growing up, um, the Cold War was still going, and so the the line was that you need to memorize the Bible because one of these days the communists could overrun our country and take all the Bibles away, and if they take your Bible away and you haven't memorized any of it, then look where you're going to be. You know, And so, boy, I was memorizing the Bible to protect myself from the communists. You know, And then, lo and behold, the whole empire fell. And my point is that that sort of motivation was driven out of fear and obligation and so on. Today, there is memorization that occurs in my life, but it is memorization because I come to a passage of Scripture and I see that, that God is speaking to me out of that passage of Scripture. And so I sit there and I look at that passage of Scripture and I write it down on a card and I take it with me and I stick it on the dashboard and before I know it, I have memorized that passage of Scripture. 
And then I memorize sections of scripture because the flow is important to me. So memorization is something that happens to me almost automatically because I'm focusing on capturing God's heart out of a particular passage. Um, It is now a passage that holds special meaning to me, and therefore, as I live life, it is something that comes back to my mind as appropriate. I've spent the last small verse of Scripture, which is fine. I think God gives you measurable goals and achievable goals. I've spent the last four years of my life focusing on one verse of Scripture. For to me, to live is Christ. Actually, it's half a verse of Scripture. For to me, to live is Christ. Every now and then, my Heavenly Father brings up the subject when we're out for our walk. I'm going to talk to you about why I go walk and what happens when I go for a walk. But my Heavenly Father will bring up this passage of Scripture, and here's the question he asks me. He says, Press, is it Christ alone or Christ plus? And I consistently say to him, let me get back to you on that. Because I know what he's asking. And I know why he's asking. I have begun to fall into the old fleshly ways of supplementing. Believing that I can contribute something to my holiness. Believing that I can contribute something to my father's opinion of me because of what I do. Given the great resources that he's entrusted to me. And so he's asking me, press, check your whole card. Is it Christ alone, the great tenet of the faith, sola Christos? Or is it Christ plus, and you fill in the blank? And I'll come back to him, and I'll say, Father, my heart's desire is Christ and Christ alone. I want nothing else, Father, but that. It's part of that communication. It's part of meditation. Christian literature, I I won't take the time to go through that. Uh, One of the things that I've done for a number of years um, with regard to my own devotions when it comes to the scriptures is I go to the Proverbs every day. There are 31 Proverbs. Interestingly enough, there are 31 days in most months. Um, Whatever the day of the month is, pick that proverb and read it. Um, what I do is I went to the drafting store. I don't even know if they have drafting stores anymore now that we've got computer-aided design. But years ago, I went to the drafting store and I bought a three-millimeter pencil. Three-millimeter pencil, referring to the lead. It's a very fine lead. And um, what I do is as I read through a through a through the proverb for the day, there will invariably be one of the verses that will jump out at me. It will be God's word to me at the moment. And I will put a date with my three millimeter pencil. I'll put a date beside that verse. And so in other words, today is the 7th of October. If you were to look at my Bible, which sits on my desk for Proverbs uh, chapter 7, every, you know, a lot of the verses there would have a date. The month would be different, but the, and the year would be different, but every date in there would be the 7th of the month. You follow the logic? Meditation. Uh, write these things down. Um, there are three questions that I ask when I meditate on the scripture. Three questions. The first question is, Father, who are you? Father, who are you in this passage of Scripture? Second question I ask, Father, what's on your mind? What are you thinking? Third question, Father, who am I? And the implication is, and what do you want of me? Three questions. Number one, Father, who are you? Number two, What's on your mind? Number three, who am I and what do you want of me? So, for example, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Very famous passage of scripture. Uh, Let's meditate on it for just a moment. What does it mean? Father, 
Who are you? Now listen, team, this is not just an example. Right now we have called upon our Heavenly Father to give us some insight into his word. We're going to meditate for just a moment, and I'm going to guide your thoughts, okay? As I'm just going to talk out loud, in other words, as Father and I have a conversation about this passage of Scripture. So, Father, who are you? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Father, I see that you're trustworthy. You are capable of handling everything that's in my heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In other words, you are capable of handling everything that is on my mind and in my heart that I want to know the things that I don't know, all of my questions. You are big enough for all of that. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Father, You, uh, part of what you want, who you want uh, me to understand you to be is that you want to be integrally involved in every aspect of my life, not just the big things, but in every aspect of life. And he will make your path straight. You are one who makes promises that you will walk with me and that you will make our path straight. That's who you are, Father. What are you thinking? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. You want me to trust you with everything that I possess. Do not lean on your own understanding. Your wish is that I would look to you, not to myself. In all your ways, acknowledge me. In everything that I do, you want to be part of this. That's what's on your mind. You're looking to see this. You're anxious to participate in me. And you will make your paths, and and I will make your paths straight. In other words, um, your thought is that you are conceiving what the goal is. You are conceiving of what the vision is. You know the destination. That's what's on your mind if I will simply join you in the journey. The third question, and who am I? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. I am one who has the privilege of trusting my Heavenly Father. I am the one endowed with the ability to trust. I am the one whom God says he wants me to trust. With all your heart, my heart possesses the capability to do this. My heart possesses the capacity to connect with my Father. My heart possesses the the intensity necessary to trust Him. Do not lean on your own understanding. You have richly endowed me, Father. You've given me ideas. You've given me dreams. You've given me visions. I'm an idea person. You've given me uh, an education, uh, a multitude of experience. I've run my own business for 30 years. I've traveled all over creation. But you don't want me to lean on those things. I'm not one who does that. Instead, I'm one who gives... Uh, you free reign and looks to you for understanding. And you will make my path straight. I am one who walks with you on the path. Do you see what it means to meditate on a verse of Scripture using those three questions? Those three questions will work if you'll write them down and use them. Pray before you start. Father, I'm looking to you for these three questions. In the name of Jesus, amen. And then you dive in. I will uh, talk in a couple of nights about prayer, so I won't uh, belabor that point. Fasting, you know, I could probably get in trouble here, but let me go ahead and be honest with you. Uh, fasting is a practice, a spiritual discipline that has never worked for me. Uh, it's, uh, it makes me too vulnerable to performance and to believing that if I fast and accomplish that and so on, that God will be proud of me. Plus, I fast all the time. I mean, I'm busy. i got a lot of things going. I miss meals. You know, so what's the difference in missing a meal because I'm busy and missing a meal because I'm fasting? You know, doesn't, uh, it just doesn't work for me. It's an impediment to me. On the other hand, one of the people that I have the greatest admiration for in the, in the world, a lady that used to work for me named Rainey uh, Majarska. Um, Rainey left the organization shortly before I did, and I'm, I was really thankful that she left. I mean, I missed, missed her terribly because, you know, we couldn't sit down and have coffee and that sort of thing. But when she, when she left and, and, and went to work, you know, out in California, um, I was no longer her boss. 
And so there was, you know, that impediment. I'm, I'm the guy that signs the paychecks, you know, so we better behave. All of that was gone, and our friendship was free of that impediment, and it just blossomed. It exploded. And this woman is just an amazing person, an amazing mind. And you know what one of the disciplines is that is so indicative of her deep walk with Christ? Regular fasting and prayer. And so go to your Heavenly Father and say, Father, what do you want of me? How do you want this to work in my life? Does it fit? Does it not? Is it for this time? Is it for another time? Speak to me, Father. All he's interested in is that you communicate with him and listen to his opinion on these matters. Besides that, there are many types of fast. We read... Um, Philippians chapter 4, finally, brethren, whatever things are honorable, pure, lovely, good repute, and so on, think on these things. In other words, think on these things, not on other things. Don't think about the other stuff. Set your mind on the truth. Set your mind on these things that are honorable and good. Let your mind dwell there. In other words, you know, make a fast to where you will deprive yourself of walking after these things and instead focus on these things that your Heavenly Father has said to focus on. So there's a lot of different kinds of fasts. If you want a little help, I wrote a book some years ago called A Study of the Mind. You can pick it up at uh, lifetime.org. Evangelism. I shared my faith for years. I got prepared to share my faith. You know, I read the, the verse out of First Peter that says, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies in your soul, and so on. And yet it always seemed a little contrived to me. An interesting thing happened the other day, uh, over the course of time, actually. Um, I have an atheist neighbor. And uh, he's become a great friend. And my atheist neighbor invited me to join a wine tasting group that meets on Friday night. And I didn't want to do that because, you know, I'm a busy person and that's the last thing I needed was something else to do during the week. And so I discussed it with Father and I realized, you know, for whatever reason, he wants me to join this group. Well, I already knew the composition of the group. There's, uh, there are eight of us in this group. Uh, there are five uh, in the group who are either atheists or agnostics. Two of those people are Jewish, uh, Jewish guys. Uh, there's one Episcopalian, one guy I don't know I have a clue um, where he is uh, on spiritual things, and me. Um, so I'm kind of odd man out. Um, so anyway, I went to this group. Um, Hated it the first time that I went. Uh, bad fellowship, bad wine, bad everything. And so I spent a week trying to get out of the group, trying to resign. And it was like my atheist neighbor just couldn't hear me. You know, I'd, I tried to resign for 30 minutes, and he said, what time are you going to pick me up Friday? You know, and I'm thinking, what didn't you get about my resignation? You know? Uh, so anyway, I... You know, the next morning I'm in the shower and I'm praying and saying, Father, I tried to get out of this. I don't want to go. And he was saying, Hey, will you just go? I got some things I want to do. Okay. Gonna go. So I went. And I went for several times. Things got better and so on. And, uh, there was one night in particular. There have been several of these things, but I'll tell you one example. Uh, it's, it doesn't happen every week, but most of the time, most weeks, there is the obligatory bashing of the scriptures that occurs right up front uh, of, the, of the group meeting. And it lasts 10, 15, 20 seconds, and it is a deal of, you know, I don't see how anybody can believe the Bible. It's just a bunch of myths and stories, and it contradicts itself, and blah, 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 and they all shake their heads and so on, and then it's the next subject. Well, on this particular night, they did the same thing, and I'm praying, and I'm saying, Father, do you want me to say anything? I mean, after all, I got a degree in antiquities and all that, so I know all about all that stuff. Would you like for me to chip in and kind of help you out on this deal? And um, the thought came back. You know, this is interesting play on words. He said, no, I want you to hold your peace and your peace. I want you to hold your P-I-E-C-E and your P-E-A-C-E. Your peace and your peace. So don't say anything and just, you know, relax and be peaceful here. You know, the scriptures have been defended for many centuries. Before you ever showed up, they'll continue just fine. I've got something I'm doing. Okay. So I sat and I just, you know, chilled. And the conversation, you know, went here and there and so on. And then uh, there was a subject, uh, 
it was, you know, political season, and uh, there had been something about the religious right or something. I don't remember what happened. And so one of the guys said, you know, the Christian people I can call, kind of tolerate, but those born-again people are the ones I just hate. And so then a, this roving discussion began to go along the table about what it meant to be born again. And so there were four or five definitions put on the table, and none of them were even close to the mark. You know, one of them was, you know, that somebody put something from this, and no, that's not what that means. Born again is when you come to the faith, and then you fall away from the faith, and then you come back to the faith, and that's when you're born again. And it was stuff like that, you know, going on, and, and so on. And so, you know, and I'm just sitting there saying, Father, you know, I'm just, I'm here. And all of a sudden, one of the guys said, uh, said, I think we ought to ask Preston. And one of the Jewish guys then, honest to goodness, you know, the table got quiet, and one of the Jewish guys looked across the table at me and he said, so Preston, tell us, what does it mean to be born again? I, I said, Father, I have not had a pitch that fat thrown at me since I quit playing slow pitch softball. And so I gave him 45 seconds of what it means to be born again. And the table was deathly silent. And then the subject changed. But you know what? It comes up periodically. They're still thinking. That's evangelism. It's relationship. It is indicative of the relationship that I have with my Heavenly Father. It's indicative of the relationship I've built with my atheist neighbor. That's evangelism. So spiritual discipline is not something that you do for God. Personal discipline is something you do with God. It's part of the relationship. It's positioning yourself to connect with Him in the same way that you position yourself to connect with your spouse or your friend or your brother or your father, or your mother. It's relationship. Father, thank you for meeting us where we are. Thank you that you make it clear that to try to work our way to you is a mistake. And to do nothing is also a mistake. Thank you that you have made it possible for us to put ourselves in a place where you are and that you will meet us there, that you're looking for us, that you're expecting us, that you have a dream and a destination that you want to share with us and that you want to escort us to in a grand adventure. In the name of Jesus, amen. Tomorrow night we'll talk about personal God and we'll find out a little bit more in, in practical ways about who he is really, as opposed to who you've heard he is all your days. See you then. This message was recorded at the Christ is Life conference hosted by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know God deeper and disciple Christians on their journey to life and freedom that they may love others from their new pure heart by faith in Jesus Christ, living through them as a result of their union with Christ at the cross. For more information, upcoming events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.